Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was in the news last week. After making an unusual announcement, he declared that he would pay the $7,000 fine and take the place under house arrest for Dallas salon owner Shelley Luther. Luther had been jailed for violating her state's stay-at-home order. Now, of course, there's a lot of layers to the story, and like everything these days, people are arguing about everyone's motivation in the situation, a lot of strong opinions on uh, every side. But as a story, the lieutenant governor's move was certainly unusual. It's not the kind of announcement that's made every day. That's why it was a headline, right? It's, not just, it's just not the sort of thing that is regularly done. That's the kind of gracious action that makes the news, people standing in the place of someone else. Paul and his companions had left Antioch to go to the island of Cyprus and then went to Asia Minor, bringing with them a story of grace. It was the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. They were taking this message to pagan Gentiles whose temperamental gods were just as paranoid and debased and violent as the worst of humankind. And the believers were also taking the good news to the Jews of these regions who were under the ruthless gladius of Rome at the time and trapped by the traditions of their fathers. To all these needy, beggared people, God sent his children, the Christians, with a message of grace. The true story that they were telling is that God is full of grace and that he has made a way that anyone anywhere can be saved from the guilt of their sin. This is a message that should make the news. It's big news. This isn't some little article buried deep in the homes and styles section of the paper that nobody reads. This is front page material. It's as shocking as it is important. Tonight we see the story told in a Turkish synagogue. Not that God had pardoned just one criminal or committed one act of generosity toward mankind, but that from generation to generation, God has been acting with powerful, inexhaustible grace toward the most undeserving of creatures. He doesn't do so for political points. He doesn't do so just to make a statement and get his name in print, but because of his lavish love towards the people of earth, even when that love is met with resistance and rebellion of the worst kind. God's grace in all its immeasurable richness is on full display in Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch tonight. But first we have to get there. So verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. It's clear that Dr. Luke is leaving a lot of incidents out when it comes to this long missions trip. Paul's first missionary journey took two, maybe three years, and uh, he's already crossed an entire uh, island, the island of Cyprus, 100 miles going throughout the whole island, and and Luke only gave us one short story from that portion of the trip. So he's skipping over a lot. But one detail he records here is that John Mark, their assistant, left the group and returned home to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he left. We do know that this decision will have long and lasting consequences later on when Uncle Barnabas suggests bringing John Mark on another trip. Luke doesn't tell us the why. We can only see what happened next, and that's that Paul and Barnabas continued forward. They continued on. I'm guessing things were either a little bit harder or a lot bit harder. Certainly, it could have been very discouraging to lose a member of the team, although I was thinking about this if Depending on how things were, maybe John Mark was 
kind of having trouble from the get-go, it might have been nice to <laughs> cut this guy loose depending on his attitude, we don't know. But it could have been really discouraging. But Paul and company pressed forward. What they didn't do is act like some of these high-strung musicians you hear about who refuse to perform if their green room isn't stocked with the right color of M&Ms or anything like that. You hear stories like that from time to time. But Paul and Barnabas, no pouting, no quitting. The labor force may have dropped by as much as a third, but there was still a field that needed harvesting and they kept at it. Verse 14, they continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So it's a different Antioch than the one we've been looking at in previous passages. The one they had been sent out of where their home church was, was Antioch down in Syria. This one is in what we call Turkey. We note that the guys behaved in a calm and cordial way in each place they visited. When you see Paul moving around the New Testament, moving around the book of Acts, there's never anything ostentatious or self-important or self-aggrandizing about uh, his behavior or his attitude. None of the apostles acted that way. A uh, lot, of, lot of faith leaders act that way today. Uh, it's not how these heroes of the book of Acts acted. Verse 15 says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leader of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. There you have the apostle of grace in attendance and the leaders of the synagogue ask, so do you have anything to say? Boy, did he have some things to say. That's, that's a great moment. You know, on a devotional level, there's a lesson for each of us. We wanna be people who have something to say about Jesus Christ. Not a meme, not cliches, not buzzwords, not something to say about some book that has something to say about Jesus Christ, but that we have something to say about our Lord and something encouraging. That's what they asked for. Not that we always give people what they ask for, but it's, it's interesting here. They did have something encouraging to say. And what does it mean to be encouraging in the biblical sense? It doesn't mean we just say things to make people feel good. That's not encouragement. That's never what Paul did. Instead, to give an encouraging message in the Bible means to deliver the kind of truth that will not only comfort and console those who need it, but will also exhort them to some sort of action. In this case, the action of turning to God for salvation. As Christians, we will do well to remember that speaking encouragement, whether that's to other Christians or to non-believers, speaking encouragement never means to coddle people but to lovingly build them up and urge them toward Christ. And God, in his grace, has made everything available to us in order to do that work. One of the things you're hearing out in the wider world right now is that there's a lot of sort of restrictions and uh, decisions and commands coming down from different levels of our governments. And sometimes those commands are being given without any equipping or without any actual direction of, okay, how am I supposed to do that? Uh, the people in the school systems in particular have been talking about, hey, you're telling us we have to do X, but there's no way for us to do X. But that doesn't cancel out the command that they've received, right? That's not how God does things. He says, hey, I'm asking you to do something and I'm gonna tell you to go and make disciples. I'm gonna tell you to go and be the herald for the savior. And here's how to do it. 
and I'm going to give you the power you need to do it and the words you need to do it and the living word of God made available to you to do it so that you can deliver the message the way that I've asked you to deliver it. Paul answers their question here, do you have something to say, with a multi-exampled explanation of the grace of God made available again and again to the people of Israel throughout their history. Verse 16, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt and led them out of it with a mighty arm. You know, the Exodus is a major, major theme in the Bible. We find it all over both Testaments. It's in the narrative books, poetry books, prophecy books. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Why is this one of the the capstone stories that we keep getting reminded of over and over again? And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Because the Exodus story demonstrates so much of God's character, so much of his work, who he is, how he does things, why he does things. It speaks of his power over the greatest of world empires. It shows him preparing and preserving the deliverer. It shows him uh, God appealing to people that they might be saved and some people choosing to exercise faith in what he said and others not choosing to exercise faith in what he said. It shows us God mobilizing all of creation for his purposes, but also how he uses human servants to accomplish his work. It shows us that blood is required for atonement for sin and God's wrath against sin, that judgment is coming. We also see his great long suffering and that anyone is allowed into the family of God as that mixed multitude went out with Israel on the night of Passover. It shows us that the devil will try to counterfeit and come against God's plan every step of the way, but that nothing can stand against the Lord. It shows us how God delivers his word to his people so that they can live their lives by it. It shows us that even when walking in victory, God's people will have to endure difficulty and suffering, and yet they are still victorious. And so the Exodus is a big deal. It packages up all of these ideas and more for us to see. And so no wonder we keep going back to it as students of the Bible. Unfortunately, despite all that God did on their behalf, the people of Israel still responded in sinful ways after the Exodus. To read some of the details of their resistance to the Lord during that time, check out Ezekiel chapter 20, which catalogs their failure to embrace the grace of God during that period. Here's what you were doing. While God was bringing you out of Egypt with a mighty arm, here's what was going on in your hearts and in the secrecy of your homes. It's a pretty revealing chapter. Now, Paul touches on it briefly here in verse 18. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Put up with them is putting it kindly. Uh, (laughs) If you had a roommate or an employee like like the people in the wilderness, uh, it's a lot to put up with. What God was putting up with was idolatry, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. Rebellion against God and his deliverer time and again. Resistance against the statutes he gave. He put up with their constant complaints. He put up with their immorality with the Moabite women and the golden calves the way they profaned the Sabbath, how they ultimately even refused to go into the promised land when he led them right to the border. And yet, what do we see throughout that period on the part of God? 
We see him saying, that's it, I'm gonna take my ball and go home. No, we see him pouring out grace upon grace throughout it all. They had everything they needed. Water was flowing out of rocks. Quail were being brought in. Manna was raining down from heaven. Even their clothes and sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. I gotta buy a new pair of chucks once a year because they just fall apart. And the Lord kept making promises to them throughout this time for their blessing and for their benefit. And he kept showing them, hey, I'm trying to make you a nation. I'm trying to give you a way of life so that you can be blessed and so that you can have more than you could ever ask or imagine. So much grace being poured out during this time. Verse 19 says, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. Hold there. In grace, God drove out nations much stronger than the Israelites. God gave them vineyards they didn't plant, cities they didn't build. Even while, say, two and a half tribes said, meh, we'd rather stay over here. We don't even want, we don't even want to check out what's on the other side of the Jordan. We'll hang out over here. Even while the people of Israel, in a general sense, continued to worship other gods they had brought from Egypt. What does Joshua say there at the end of the book? He says, hey, me and my house are going to serve the Lord. You people should put away your foreign gods that you have stashed in your houses that you think I don't know about and you think God doesn't know about. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that. We've got to get around to that. Verse 20 continues. After this, God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. If you want to talk about the immeasurably good grace of God, turn to Judges. And those chapters are some of the foulest histories of man's dealings with one another. And yet, though God was ignored and rejected over and over by tribe after tribe, generation after generation, as they kept turning away from him again and again, he kept sending heroes to save his people, heroes filled with miraculous power to set Israelites free from the captivity that they brought on themselves. That's incredible grace. Judge after judge after judge, bringing God's grace with them until the time of Samuel, we're told here, the last judge, the first seer, when God started to do something new. That new thing was kicked off, not because the people finally got it and embraced the grace of God, not because they were in a period of some sort of spiritual revival. No, God had to do something new because they were resisting the Lord once again in an even more profound way. Look at verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. The Lord consoled a heartbroken Samuel during this situation. He said, listen, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They're deposing me as king off of the throne of Israel. This rejection, when we think about it, is really second only to when the Jews asked for Barabbas to be freed instead of Jesus Christ at the crucifixion. The, the people of Israel gather together before Samuel, God's man, and they say, hey, uh, we know God brought us out of Egypt. We know he sustained us through the wilderness. We know he conquered Canaan for us. We know he kept delivering us in the book of Judges. We would like to be done with him. Give us a man to rule over us so that we can be like the other nations. What a rebellion. What a rejection. What a terrible, awful thing. Of course, Saul in the end was not cut out for the job, we know that, but at the outset, he was in some ways the best man in the nation, tall, strong, willful. But what could the best man in the nation do to compare with the power and wisdom of God their king, the king who was on the throne before that time? When Saul came to power, the army didn't even have swords to fight with. What can a human king do with no sword and no army that the Lord couldn't do with the power of his word? 
When the giant stepped forward, what did Saul, their great king, do? He hid. I'm not gonna go fight that guy. Yeah, I'm the tallest man in the whole nation, but I'm not gonna fight the tallest man in the Philistine nation. Why would I do that? He cowered in fear. He was willing to let a young lad go and lay his life down so that he didn't have to fight. He said, hey, why don't you strap on my armor? And I have the, the, the inkling that he wanted people to maybe think it was him out there fighting against the giant. Of course, we know how that all turned out. This is what the people chose instead of having a heavenly king, the heavenly king who could part the Red Sea to let his people through, close the Red Sea to destroy the world's most powerful army, the king who could stop the sun in the sky so that he could win a victory for his people. They said, yeah, no thanks. We would like this other guy over here. In fact, they didn't even say we would like this other guy. They'd say, we'd like any guy other than you, God. We just want a king. You know, the people of Israel didn't come and say, look how great Saul is, look how strong Saul is, look how right Saul is for this job. They just said, we just want a guy. Find us a guy. Go on monster.com and we'll pull some resumes and we'll see who we have. But you know, even for Saul, and we know his story, most of us, even for Saul, God gave abundant grace. He filled him with the Holy Spirit. He put a new heart in him. He gave him victory. He brought to him honorable and brave servants that would build up his kingdom there at the beginning, right when he first is established king. The, the, the book of 1 Samuel says that God moved on the hearts of courageous men to go and serve Saul. More and more grace in the face of obscene rebellion. Verse 22, after removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. You know, the removal of Saul, that's a sad thing in the story, but even that is an act of grace for the nation. By the end of Saul's reign, he had shown himself to be a, an abysmal leader, a terrible king. He was willing to kill his own son to make one of his insane executive orders seem legitimate. He had made this insane proclamation that only hurt and hampered and weakened his army. His son didn't know about it, broke the, broke the order, and he said, well, I guess we've got to kill our, my son, the captain of the army here. Could bring him over here. We'll cut him apart. And the people, you know, intervened so that didn't happen. But that's the kind of king he turned out to be. Saul was tormented by fear and demonic activity and jealousy toward the end. Replacing Saul with David was like pulling out a dead and rotten tree and instead in its place planting a great mature fruit tree that would give shade and abundance and, and refreshment to the people who came there. This action was not only so that a toxin could be removed from Israel, but so that the Lord could send yet another deliverer, David. God was trying to get David in place because David was another deliverer for the people. He's going to free them from the Philistines. He was the giant slayer. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was a king who wasn't afraid to have those who were discouraged or desperate or in debt in his company and to lift them up. This was a man who showed the world the heart of God. God who <clears throat> strengthens the weak and revives the spirit. Verse 23, from this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. More grace, more promises. To David, God made another covenant, a set of agreements that he was binding himself to, not because David deserved it, but all out of grace. God was doubling down on his gracious policy, knowing all that the people had done before and all the resistance that still lay ahead after David's time, 
And yet grace kept flowing from heaven to earth, not shrinking, but widening in scope and in range. As Paul continued his sermon here, he spared the audience a reminder of the 400 years of rebellion under the kings after David uh, went home to be with the Lord. And then the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew and all of the things that were going on there. Instead, Paul leaps forward all the way to someone greater than Moses or Joshua or Samuel or David to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Never was there a leader more selfless, a judge more heroic, a prophet more discerning, a king more good than Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the ultimate gift of grace given by God to us. Verse 24, before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, who do you think that I am? I'm not the one, but one is coming after me and I am not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. God didn't send this most precious gift unannounced. All of human history have been leading and pointing to the arrival of the Messiah. And the Lord even then sent a forerunner ahead of him to announce his coming, to make it absolutely clear. John the Baptist explained that this next deliverer in the long line of many deliverers for the nation of Israel, this next one was not some temporary strong man, not some political figure, not some flashy leader. He was the Lamb of God who would once for all solve the problem of sin for those who will repent. John said that Jesus was the one. American cinema is full of sagas about the one, right? Whether it's Neo in the Matrix trilogy, Harry Potter in the 50 or 60 movies they made about him, John Connor, even Poe in Kung Fu Panda, it's all about how he's the one, right? We all know this theme about the one that is unlike all the rest. The one who can bring lasting peace to the broken system or the one who can finally destroy that greatest of enemy. That yearning that comes out in things like books and plays and movies, that yearning deep within is not just for screenwriters. It is the eternity in our hearts drawing us toward the actual the one, the original one. Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived and died and rose again, the one who was and is and is to come. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of his salvation has been sent. Paul puts himself and his audience in the story now. God had spent long centuries sending warriors and prophets and seers and judges and shepherds, and now he was sending fishers of men spiritual field workers to continue the long work of grace. In passing, we note Paul's ever-present distinction between real ethnic descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. God has not forsaken them. He has not forgotten them. He has not replaced them. He has not changed what it means to be a descendant of Abraham in this sense. His plan and promises to them will be fulfilled just as he said they would be for thousands and thousands of years. His grace for them has not expired. Verse 27, since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Well, we read the gospels and we see why. It was hardness of heart. It was jealousy and envy that led to the rejection of Christ. It wasn't that Christ hid himself away so that they couldn't recognize him. They saw the things he did what, remember that scene when some of the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, are you the one? He says, go and tell John this. 
The blind are receiving their sight. And, and the lame are made to walk. And the dead are being raised. Yeah, I'm the one. And so they had seen the things he had did. They knew the scriptures which prepared them for his coming. They read them every Sabbath. Yet out of rebellion, they refused him when he came. Verse 28, though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. God knew from the beginning what would happen. Jesus himself had predicted and parabled all about it. This makes his grace all the more potent, his love all the more compelling. Now Christ knew that he was going to be rejected and despised and hung on a Roman cross. He knew that his people who he loved so dearly would look at him, raise Lazarus from the dead and say, we have to murder this guy. And like we've pointed out before, to those very people, God was sending the apostles, sending the 12, sending men like Paul to try to give them a chance and another chance and another chance to understand grace and to understand salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 30, but God raised him up from the dead and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. The cross, the tomb, and the resurrection are the climax of God's grace. Not the end of God's grace. Of course not, because God is still pours it out all over the world for each of us day in and day out. But there in eternity past, as God looked down through the ages at the rebels of earth and to see what we would make of God's creation, he thought among the Godhead, how can we save them? Look at what's going to happen. How can we save them? The answer, the cross, the resurrection. What a strange and terrible price to have to pay. Who would have suggested it? In what human meeting would anyone have signed off on this plan? How do we save this failing enterprise. Not that God had failed, but people had failed. How do we save what has gone wrong here? I have no idea. How about the person who made the company goes and dies? And somehow that will save everyone. No one would have signed off on this plan. And yet, like the Mandalorian would say, this is the way, right? I love that. I don't know if you, anybody, I know some of you have watched The Mandalorian, but The Mandalorian are like a tribe of people in the story, right? It's a Star Wars thing for those of you who don't know. And they have certain rituals and certain principles, things like they'll never remove their helmet in, in the presence of another person. They just won't. And they have a couple of other strange things like that, that they live their lives by this rigid code. And every now and then someone will ask them, well, what's up with that? And they always have the same answer. This is the way. And, and then that just ends the conversation. There's no other way, there's no other option, and this is what we're sticking to. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to redeeming mankind, there actually was no other way. It wasn't just you know, a guy who wanted to wear a helmet. God said, you know, this is the way, there's one way. Jesus even said in the Garden of the Gethsemane, if there's another way, maybe we could have this cup pass from me. And of course there wasn't, this is the way and the Lord paid the price. All of this, as Paul rightly pointed out, is good news. As Christians, we never want to forget how good our God's grace is, how good the message of the gospel is. We should be people who are heralding good news. John Krasinski of Jack Ryan and the Office fame right now is 
getting shared a lot on social media because he's putting out little videos all about good news in the era of COVID, right? People are sharing it like it's going out of style. The gospel is good news, and we want to not forget that it is good. God's grace is good. God is good. His work in us is good. His message through us is good. It's good, good news. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. God's promises are fulfilled by God, fully and on his own. Now we benefit from them, and he may use human beings as vessels for his purposes. That by itself is another fantastic example of the amazing grace of God. But it is his power and his ability which accomplish all of these things. Now, Paul cites Psalm 2, showing how Bible prophecy demonstrates that the flow of history is under God's charge. Therefore, we should keep ourselves interested in those prophecies which tell us what is yet to happen in God's gracious plan moving forward. Verse 34, as to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. So listen, these were true and literal promises and they were, will be truly and literally fulfilled as truly as Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Not just the promises to Jesus, but to David and to Abraham, to the nation of Israel. God is going to keep those promises just like he kept his promise to Jesus Christ to raise him from the dead. These promises are holy and sure and God will not only bring them to pass, but he has, through his astounding grace, now included us in them. And Paul talks about this in passages like Galatians 3. He says, hey, guess what? All these things that God is doing, he's included us in that too. He says, you want in on this inheritance that I'm going to give my son? It's an amazing set of gracious actions that the Lord continues to pour out for us. Verse 38, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. This is the deal. This is the biggest issue. This is what matters. What can a man do to deal with the guilt of his sin? You know, if a person was walking around during the bombing of London in the fall of 1940, something like, something like what should we do about campaign finance reform or what should we do about school choice probably wouldn't seem all that important in that situation as the planes came over and the bombs were dropping out. Hang on. While you run for your bomb shelter, I want to talk to you about, <laughs> I want to talk to you about sustainable agriculture. <laughs> Obviously, that drops way down to the bottom of the list, right? It wouldn't seem all that important given the situation, right? And I think we need to have more of that mindset when it comes to people who are about to enter a Christless eternity. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of issues. There are a lot of important things, but the most important thing the most essential and urgent thing is that sin has to be dealt with. Because if a person refuses to come to Jesus as Savior willfully, they will be brought before him as judge. And they will be punished and, and given the weight of their sin, which is an eternity in hell separated from Christ forever and ever. Verse 39, everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. 
By faith, Abraham was made righteous. By faith, people were spared from the death angel on the first Passover. By faith, David defeated the giant. The first audience of Paul here for this sermon, these Jewish individuals, thought that by following their interpretation of the law, they could earn God's favor. All the while, God was freely pouring out his grace to deliver them from the sin, right? The law, Paul would explain in Romans, could only condemn them. It couldn't justify them, and that's what he says here. He says, the law can't save you. All the law can do is condemn you. The Lord had made a way so that any of them and all of them could be saved. And he kept trying to tell them about it. He kept sending people to, to, to tell his people, Israel, this is how you can be saved. This is how you can be saved. This is how you can be saved. Even though again and again, the nation in general kept rebelling and resisting and turning from God. Verse 40, so beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. As with each example from Moses forward, we see there was a choice to be made. Would the people believe God, turn to him and live in his grace or would they go their own way? Would they turn and look at that serpent raised up in the wilderness to be saved from death? Would they make the choice, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, we will go God's way. In each one of these examples, we see, are you gonna be a Saul or are you gonna be a David? Are you gonna go God's way? Yes, imperfectly, yes, through difficulty, but are you gonna go God's way or are you not gonna go God's way? And Paul's saying the same thing to that original audience and to all of his readers throughout human history here. Are you going to go God's way? Beware that what the prophets wrote doesn't happen to you. Verse 42 says, as they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout people, like, probably left them in a lurch a little bit. We're not sure why he left, but we know uh, it stung later on when Paul and Barnabas talked about it. But what did Paul do? He didn't try to ruin John Mark's life. He didn't say, I'm gonna make sure you never get another ministry job as long as you live. He didn't say that. He didn't hound John Mark and write some angry letter and say, that guy needs to be kicked out of the church. No, he just continued in grace. Rather, he behaved like God had so many times over, showing love and graciousness even towards those who resisted him. We'll see that a lot in Paul's ministry. There's gonna be a time when people are pulling him apart and he gets saved out of it and he says, excuse me, I'd like to go back and talk to those people. It's gonna be a time when he's stoned to death, dragged out of the city and then he wakes up and he goes back in. Maybe we could talk to some more people. That's some real grace. It's the kind of grace that God had poured out in his life. He was a recipient of profound grace. We are too. Uh, our stories are just not as dramatic in many ways as Saul of Tarsus. But... Paul was exampling this kind of grace to the people. He behaved like God, showing love, showing graciousness. At the same time, he didn't compromise or quit when the going got tough. He continued in the tradition of David, who we're told in verse 22, was a man after God's own heart who carried out all God's will. We think about a lot of time that, that moniker, David was a man after God's own heart, and it's true, he was. And then the second part of that is, and so he carried out God's will. He wasn't just, well, I'm, I'm a Christian in my heart or I follow God in my heart. He says, now I need to live it. 
now I'm going to follow. In the New Testament vernacular, it's say, hey, Jesus, I wanna follow you. And Jesus says, okay, take up your cross and follow me. And sometimes when Jesus had people come up to him and said, well, I wanna follow you. He said, okay, why don't you do this? They said, mm. I mean, I wanna follow you, but I wanna follow you, follow you. I wanna kind of follow you in a looser sense, right? But Paul's encouraging them and us to to walk in the tradition here of David, to be a person who's after God's own heart and who carries out all God's will. That's how a person continues in grace. The same grace that flows from heaven day after day, sending hope and help and everlasting life to all who will receive it as a gift. Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel and Paul, they're all gone, right? They're alive in glory, worshiping before the throne of grace. But now we're here. We continue where they have left off. We are the people God is raising up to do the work and deliver the message. A few years ago, there was a Colorado man who won $1.9 million in the lottery, but he didn't find out for five months. He didn't find out till the next calendar year. The state wasn't about to track him down and say, hey, we'd like to give you $2 million of ours. Do you want, <laughs> and we're gonna do that. In fact, did you know Americans forego about $2 billion in unclaimed lottery prize money every single year? Because why would the lottery seek you out to tell you that you're a winner if they get to keep it themselves? That's not how God works. God has awarded the greatest prize to those who will believe, the prize of grace. The, the, the jackpot of everlasting life. But then he takes the initiative to tell people about what he has done. We are the assistants in that effort. We are working in the role of the deliverer, right? Not the, the deliverer, Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer, but we are in the place of the Samuel and of the Moses and of the Paul and of the Barnabas and of the judges and of the prophets. We are the people God has raised up and says, now go go and deliver my grace to these people so that they can have another chance to hear about how much I love them and what I've done for them and all I want to do for them. We have the privilege of proclaiming the matchless grace of God. As we do so, we should do it graciously the way God does, mimicking our Lord and the many that have come before us to the praise of the glory of his grace.